That is our prayer for this season, that hearts and lives will wake up to the light of the world. Think about it every morning as the sun rises, we are reminded of the power of light over darkness. And we pray that that physical light will remind us of the spiritual light that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Well, toward the end of the first century, the last surviving member of the twelve apostles that Jesus chose penned words that we look at this morning. The rest of the band of those closest to Jesus during His earthly ministry had died martyrs' death rather than turn from the good news that Christ had commissioned them to proclaim to all the world. And this time of year, we celebrate the birth of Jesus the Messiah, but John, the last surviving apostle, does not begin his gospel with the birth of Jesus when God the Son was born in human flesh. If you're going to really appreciate what happened in Bethlehem, if you're going to come to know Jesus as your Savior, you have to know that His existence didn't start in Bethlehem. So John goes back beyond ancient times, beyond the beginning of everything into eternity past. And there, God the Son was already existing before anything else came into being. We read John's words in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Follow with me as I read, in the beginning, literally in beginning, the beginning of everything, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning we look at the light of life, Jesus Christ. John begins his gospel, was pointing to his identity in verses 1 through 5. Then he talks about his coming in verses 9 through 13. And then he talks about his witnesses, John the Baptist and also the Apostle John. John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, the Apostle John, 
the last surviving member of the apostles. His identity, his coming, his witnesses, the light of light. So really everything hangs on who Jesus actually is. Was he just a man? Was he just an ordinary human being? Or was he just an extraordinary human being um, who did extraordinary things? Or was he someone much more? John says he's much more. In verses 1 and 2, he points to his identity. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So twice John refers to the beginning before the creation of the heavens and the earth, the ultimate beginning of everything, the Word was already existing. He did not become. So John makes clear from the beginning that Jesus Christ is an eternal being, His eternality. And He calls Him the Word. That word, logos, was familiar to the Greeks of ancient times. They referred to the Lagos, the Word, as the foundational principle of reason and order, an impersonal sort of force. To the Jews, the Lagos, the Word, would have been the personal revelation from God. They had received and guarded the Word of God spoken to them from the prophets and, and written in their scriptures. A word communicates meaning to those who understand the language. And Jesus communicated to us who God is. He made, he made God knowable to us by being born in human flesh. John explains it later in chapter 1 and John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, so we're talking about the relationship among the Trinity, He has made Him known. He has, we've actually got a word that we use, exegete, do, do exegesis to draw out. He has exegeted him. Just as a faithful preacher draws out from a scriptural text what it actually says, God, Christ, made God known to us as He actually is. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ. He has made Him known he has translated who God is into human form, into a language we can understand as human beings, so that never again could people say God is far off, unknowable, that, that somehow you just can't know whether He exists at all. Jesus has made Him known. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way long ago, that many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus Christ. He has made him known. The Word was with God, which tells you that not only is He God, but he, there's, he, He's a distinct person within the Godhead, God the Son, and He dwells before all time in a face-to-face -face relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. And the Word was God. 
This is not new revelation, but a terse summary of but, but what both the Old Testament and the New Testament reveal. The Old Testament prophecies regarding the coming Messiah revealed that He would be God in the flesh. You remember, we, we quote these prophecies often at Christmas time. Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? Yeah, with us, God. God with us. So, this prophecy regarding the Messiah says that when He is born, He will be God with us. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder. So, so we're learning that this coming Messiah will be born as a child, just as was fulfilled, and He will rule a kingdom, and His name shall be called Wonderful or Miraculous Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are only a couple of the prophecies that refer to the coming Messiah as God in the flesh. He did miracles that only God can do. And so, the New Testament apostles affirm that Jesus matches the prophecies that had been revealed through the Old Testament prophets. They declared His deity, and so do the apostles, as eyewitnesses of His divine glory. He did miracles only God can do. He healed the blind, the lame, the lepers. He raised the dead. He, he Himself rose from the dead. Jesus revealed what no one but God could know. He read people's minds. He forgave sin. He received and accepted worship. He predicted that He would call people to life from the grave at the resurrection, at the end of the age, and that He, Jesus, would be the final judge of all the world. Listen to His words in John 5. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will, to whoever He wants to. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And as, you, as He talks about this judgment, we're reminded of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7, where one like the Son of Man comes from heaven, and to Him is given a kingdom, and He and thrones are set, and he, he executes judgment on the world. So, this same concept is coming through here as Jesus speaks. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Look, no just average human being talks this way. No human being talks this way unless he's also God. On the night he was betrayed, he declared, I and my Father are one in John 14. And then John reiterates here the close relationship between God the Father and God the Son in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. This relationship of love among the members of the Godhead flows out to produce a relationship of love within the community of those who believe in Christ, a fellowship, a having in common, not only with God but with one another, reflecting the triune God who created us in His image and has redeemed us to life through Jesus Christ 
as we become new creations in him. John 1, verses 3 to 5, he goes on to say, All things were made through him, this same word, and without him was not anything made that was made, and him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus, the Word, the Revealer, is also the Creator. Nothing came into being that He did not create, both material and immaterial world. His fingerprints are everywhere. So as the Creator God, He is the life and the source of life. As the Revealer, the Word, He is the light, truth versus falsehood, life versus death, holiness versus corruption. Jesus brings this to us. John uses the imagery of light and darkness throughout his gospel. Light dispels darkness, and darkness hates the light because it exposes what is there. But the darkness, John declares, has not overcome the light. And what a statement to make at the end of the first century with all the persecutions, both from the Judaizers and then from the entire empire itself. What a statement to make when so many apostles met a martyr's fate. The darkness has not overcome the light. Overcome translates a word that means to seize it or to overtake, and in some contexts, it can mean to grasp or understand. So, in some translations, you'll see comprehend, but the meaning here is that the darkness has not conquered the light. The darkness could not snuff it out. And it's not that the darkness did not try. Herod slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem in his effort to destroy the newborn Messiah King. Satan, the prince of darkness, tried to get Jesus to sin in the wilderness, but failed. Satan's demons screamed out against him in the synagogues and in the streets. Satan desired to sift Peter as wheat. Satan filled Judas to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and Satan was at work in the hearts and minds of the scribes, chief priests, and Pharisees who conspired to kill and murder Jesus. In fact, in Luke 22, as they were arresting Jesus on the night he was betrayed, Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, I mean, think about it, these are the guardians of worship. These are the leaders of the people of God. These are those that copy the Scriptures. Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. They succeeded in their plot crucifying the Lord Jesus. But it turns out that was God's foreordained plan from the beginning. Tens of thousands of sacrifices had pointed to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And then, also in accord with Scripture, he rose from the dead three days later. Well, Herod went on to execute James, the brother of John, with the sword. He imprisoned Peter with intent to do the same to him, but an angel delivered him. The Sanhedrin had Stephen stoned to death. Saul ravaged the church from city to city until Jesus stopped him cold on the road to Damascus and set him making disciples of Jesus all over the Gentile world. Nero 
to stamp out Christianity. He was the, not the first and he was not the last, executing Peter and Paul, among many others. But the darkness could not and cannot and will not prevail. It will never conquer the light, for the light conquers the darkness. As we think about Jesus as light, as we think about who He is, in what ways do you acknowledge that Jesus is God the Creator of everything, the life, and the revealer of truth, the light? In what ways has Jesus, the light of the world, dispelled your own darkness? And in what ways does that darkness still rule your life? And the question is, why? Why would you let the darkness continue to, to exercise tyrannical control over your life when Jesus, the light of life, has come to set you free? And that's what John talks about in verses 9 through 13, his coming. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The true light, which enlightens every man. What does he mean by that? Well, God has given light to all the human race. He has done so through His creation, the things that are made testify to His Godhead, and Jesus was the one who made the world, human conscience, and also then His Son, Jesus Christ, who came in human flesh. There's nowhere we can turn where we don't find evidence of God, and we don't find proof of what He has revealed his handiwork is everywhere, whether we look through a telescope or a microscope or observe our world with the naked eye. Even in the dark, we know God is there because our conscience keeps telling us right from wrong, accusing us or excusing us. Well, the eternal word, the true light, broke into human history just as the prophets had foretold. Remember the words of Isaiah? In fact, we looked at them even just this morning but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In other words, Galilee is up in this, this territory that belonged to Zebulun and Naphtali. Remember, northern Israel turned away from God uh, for many years, once the kingdom split, they, they were idol worshipers from the beginning. They never had a good king. There was darkness that reigned there, and that's precisely the place that Jesus went. And by that time, there are many Gentiles living in the area, uh, nations of many, not just Jews, living in the area. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. And that's just, it's just the way God is in His character. He goes to the darkest places on earth, and He sends the light. He sent Jesus to, to grow up in this town of Nazareth, this kind of hybrid town of, of, of Jews and Gentiles, a, a, a town never known to be anything all that important, a land that had known darkness literally for centuries, and He sent the light of the world there. This Jesus created the world, 
He was in the world some 33 years, but the world did not know him. Now, why is that? Well, part of it is he chose to come in humble circumstances. The world is always looking for somebody who makes a splash. He did not make a big deal about himself. Instead, he did the work God the Father sent him to do. He was not treated as a king of the world, but as a blasphemer and a criminal, despite the fact that no charge could be leveled against him of any untruth, saved the false charge that he was not the one that he said he was. He never sinned against anyone in any way. He always did what pleased the Father. And humanity, even to this day, knows that he was no liar, he was no blasphemer, he was no criminal. Even religions that trust in some other man-weighed way of salvation hold him as a unique, good man and prophet from God. But they refuse to know him as God and Lord and Savior because they will not bow the knee to him. He came to his own things, his world that he had created, his land that he had given to the people of Israel, and his own people did not receive him. It's not that every Jew rejected him. The apostles were Jews. Nicodemus was a Jew, a member of the Sanhedrin, a teacher of the Scriptures, but most who led the nation of Israel, the scribes and priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and Sadducees would not receive Jesus. Their pride would not allow it. He exposed their hypocrisy. He threatened their power, and he interfered with their greed. They followed the footsteps of many Israelites and generations before them who stoned the prophets that God sent and pursued their own ways instead. And so John declares in John 3, this is the judgment. This is the crisis. This is the, the turning point, if you will, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why is it that people run from God? Why is it that they try to write him out of existence? Why do they say, well, we just can't know? Why is it that they, they don't want to hear you talk about Jesus as being God and Savior? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. In our human nature, there is this rebellion that does not want even God telling us what to do, that does not want to be held accountable for for doing wrong and for pursuing our own indulgence. And that is the judgment. How do I respond to light? In John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the apostle Paul, remember once he hated Jesus and his people, he was converted. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, going all the way back to creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory, the shining splendor of God, how? In the face of Jesus Christ. So not everyone rejected Jesus, and we learned that in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, John wants you to have that clear. He, he defines that exactly. To receive him is to believe in his name. A name is, refers to one's character as he is known, as he's been made known, his reputation. So to receive Jesus is to believe in him, in his name, as God has revealed Jesus to be. It's to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior King. It's to believe in Jesus as the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's to believe in Jesus as God's beloved Son in whom He's well pleased. It's to believe in Jesus as the Lord. As long as you leave Him just as a man, as long as you leave Him just as a prophet, you don't believe in His name. You're, you're calling Him by a different name. Well, all who receive him for who he actually is, as he's revealed himself to be, he has authorized these individuals to become children of God, to be born of him. Not a natural human birth, but a spiritual birth accomplished by the Holy Spirit so that, that God's very spiritual DNA becomes yours. You become like God from the inside out in the way you think about life and the way you think toward sin and toward righteousness. It is not on the basis of ethnic origin. It's not of blood. This gospel is for all ethnicities. It is not by human power, by the will of the flesh. It's not just by trying harder or adding one more thing to your to-do list. It is not by some man-made system, the will of man. To see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. There's nobody sitting in the room that chose to be born. It wasn't your decision. You didn't give yourself life. You're not self-created. In the same way, it is God choosing us. It is God giving us life that gives us life. To see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again, born of the Spirit, just as Jesus told Nicodemus, no man can will himself to be a child of God. It's God's will that accomplishes it. It's, it's really the ultimate recognition that we need to be rescued. Somebody that's drowning cannot just swim harder to save himself. Somebody who's drowning needs a lifeguard to rescue him. And that's what Jesus is. God, God gave the right, the authority to be children of God to those who would receive him, who would believe in his name. It's something God does. If you think about it, it just seems so almost crazy to think, well, just believing something could make such a big difference. But, but the value of faith has to do in, with, with what you're putting your faith in. You put your faith in something, let's say, you know, you put your faith in ice on a lake to hold you up. Well, it all depends on how thick the ice is, right? Okay? So people down in the south don't walk on ice. Okay? At least not for very long. Okay? And what you put your faith in 
is what will hold you up or not. And the people who put their faith in Jesus will find that he holds them up, that they do not drown. All of humanity falls into those who've received Christ, believing in his name, and those who don't. So the question really is for you, which group are you in? Because John lays out only two, those that received him and those that did not. And if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, how does being a child of God, because that's what he says happens, if you're believing in him, you're a child of God, how does that shape how you view your life and how you live it? I mean, think about the difference of waking up every morning instead of just thinking about the job, instead of just thinking about how tired you are or or what bills you've got to pay. What if you wake up every morning and say, I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave of sin. I am a child of God. I mean, how does, what does life look like when you live that way? And what part of your world, if any, do you not treat as belonging to Him? He was in the world. The world was made by Him. The world didn't know Him. What should you hand over to Him as the rightful owner? I mean, think about it. The air you breathe is His air. The heart that's pumping blood through your system, He made it. Every one of your days, He appointed before there's even one of them. Every sunrise you see, every sunset, every change of seasons, these are all the work of His hands. You live in God's world. You, you, you are alive because God has given you life. Is there any part of your world that you have not handed over to the one who rightly owns it? And why would you withhold it? I mean, do you really think you can do it better? That doesn't even make sense. Finally, we see in verses 6 through 8 and also verse 14, we see his witnesses. And this is important because some people say, well, You know, how could we even know this about Jesus? Well, we're reading this now because of his witnesses. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist was a prophet from God. God did this through the centuries, sent prophets, those who would hear from him and speak to others. He's the last in a long line of messengers from God who predicted that the Messiah would come. It had actually been 400 years since Malachi had prophesied of John the Baptist, behold, I send my messenger before your face, and I will prepare the way before you. Jesus declared that John was a prophet and more than a prophet, that among those born of women there had risen no greater. So John was the last in a long line of prophets from God who declared that the Messiah is coming. John was also the prophet to announce he's here. He clearly was sent from God. His own birth was a miracle, for he was born to an elderly couple past childbearing years. The angel told his father Zacharias what to name him. Name him John, grace of Yahweh. 
You remember that Zacharias found the angel's prediction so incredible, so hard to believe that the angel said, you're, you're not going to be able to speak until this child is born. John was full of the Holy Spirit in the womb. And when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, to tell Elizabeth about the angel's visitation to her and that she would be giving birth to the Messiah, John's mother, she, John's mother testified, she's six months into her pregnancy, that the baby in the womb leaped at the sound of Mary's voice. And Elizabeth knew Mary was to be the virgin mother of the Lord, the Messiah. John preached in the wilderness. He lived on locusts and wild honey. He dressed in camel's hair. Uh, he was a rough sort of man. He was an odd sort of man. Yet people in neighboring towns flocked to hear him preach, and many from every walk of life were baptized in the Jordan with the baptism of repentance from sin and preparing for the coming king. John was clearly a prophet from God. There's no way to explain his career. Well, John made it clear that he was not the Messiah. He was not the light. He was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, as Isaiah 40 had predicted, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In Mark 1, 7 and 8, it's recorded, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In John 1, 29, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who can do that? Who can take away the sin of the world but God himself and the Lamb of God? This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, John the Baptist is actually born six months before Jesus. So he's not talking about birth order. He's talking about the preexistence of Jesus. He came before me. The prophets are not the only ones who bore testimony to the Messiah, though. The apostles join the prophetic testimony of the Old Testament with the eyewitness testimony of the New. Having spent three and a half years traveling with Jesus in his ministry, John the Apostle testifies in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh, a real human being with flesh and blood and bones, not merely a phantom. God, God did not withdraw from becoming human, despite what the, the, the philosophy that was popular at that time, a Gnostic sort of philosophy, a dual, Greek dualism, said that God would never dirty himself with actual material, and yet Jesus became flesh. He ate and drank. He grew tired and slept. John and many others saw him, heard him, touched him, and yet they testify that he is God. God in human flesh, just as the prophets had foretold. He dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us, and we have seen his glory. We've closely observed his shining splendor. What kind of shining splendor are you talking about, John? The shining splendor is of the only Son from the Father. The monogonase, the one-of-a-kind Son from the Father. There was no one else like Him, full of grace 
and truth. The full measure of God's goodness and favor necessary to our salvation filled Jesus and was communicated to us. The full measure of truth, nothing deceptive or false, completely reliable, worthy of our full trust. Jesus is the gospel of grace and truth. We must believe to receive God's gracious gift of salvation from sin and death and hell. We must believe that what he's telling us is the truth when he shows us Jesus. So what have you done with all the prophetic testimony to who the Messiah would be and all the eyewitness testimony to who Jesus is? You know, it's just not intellectually honest if you've been exposed to any of that to say, well, we just can't know. It it is willfulness not to believe. If Jesus is the one the prophets and the apostles declared him to be, and as he himself confirmed, unless you're prepared to claim that they were all fools and liars, how have you personally responded to him? And what about your life shows that you are experiencing God's grace and truth through Jesus Christ? You know, Jesus said he is the light of the world, and he turned around and said, you're the light of the world. You who know me, you're the light of the world. Why is that? Because if you're experiencing God's grace and truth, he is changing you so that people can see Jesus in you. And when they see Jesus in you, people see God at work in you. And, and you rip away the excuses and you point them to the only Savior, a God, a God who can save you, a God who can save me, can save anybody. It's for sure we can't save ourselves. So why has John shared this profound opening to his gospel? It wasn't just to write a bunch of pretty words. Well, it really has the same purpose as the rest of his gospel has. And he, he explains that toward the end of his gospel in John 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs. Those are miracles with the message in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, here's the purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. His character, what He's revealed Himself to be, is sufficient to rescue you. To rescue you from every sin that dominates your life, to rescue you from the death that every one of us will die We need somebody who can raise us from the dead to rescue us from the due penalty of your sin and instead give you an inheritance among the saints of light, new heaven, new earth, a residence in the heavenly city, the capital of the universe. This is what Jesus has come to do for you. If you would believe and you have every reason to trust him. When you see his identity, when you recognize his coming in human history, And when you listen to his witnesses, you realize this is the light of life. I need light. I need a life. You need a light. You need a life. You need Jesus. We need him.
I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment and take just a moment to meditate on this passage. I know that, you know, this is just a brief time, but um, in, in time that will be uh, maybe in this season, you can think about this passage more. But where, where are you in relation to Jesus? How have you responded to, to him? So take a moment and just respond to this passage. Heads bowed, eyes closed as we, as we think about our relationship to him. God, now we pray that you would do your work through your word. Lord, you have done everything necessary for us to receive Jesus for who he actually is. You have revealed yourself in ways that every human being can understand. You have given us testimony the testimony of those who prophesied centuries before who Jesus would be, the testimony of those who knew him personally, and they all point to the same thing. This is God in the flesh, the light of life, the one sent to be the Savior of the world. Trust him. Lord, I pray that we would be trusting him, that we would be turning from our darkness and letting his light fill our lives. May we shine as light to our dark world, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.